I found out I was black when I went swimming. It wasn't my first time going swimming. I had been to the YMCA pool several times and am, in fact, a very good swimmer. My favorite movie was Little Mermaid, and what mesmerized me most about Ariel was the way her hair moved in the water, how it majestically trailed behind her, the way it sat on her shoulders when she did make an appearance to the surface. I wanted to experience this as well. I always wore a swimming cap, and when I went swimming, and most times a shower cap to go with it for that extra layer of protection. My mother always told me to never forget it. If I did, my hair would get messed up. One night, I went to the pool with my friends. I decided that I was going to go for it. I kept my swimming cap in the locker with the rest of my things, and I followed the other girls to the pool, where we stood in line along the edge of the pool. Once we were given permission, we hopped in. I glided through the water and I felt the hair on the nape of my neck. Success! I had lived my dream. And when I emerged from the water, I noticed the funny looks on my friends' faces. I also noticed my hair didn't hang as loosely as theirs did. But we continued playing. When I walked back into the locker room, I could feel that something was wrong. I didn't feel my hair. Not on the back of my neck or on the sides of my head. It felt puffy in my hands, just not straight or smooth as it had been before I entered the water. The biggest blow was when I passed the mirrors leading back into the locker room. I burst into tears at the side of my head, a hideous bush that was my hair, and it didn't make it better getting a lecture on the ride home. Your hair doesn't do that, my mother told me, never explicitly telling me what that meant. But that was the first and major indication that I was different from my white complexion counterparts. I used to look back and wonder, how could I not know? How could my parents not tell me? Or why wasn't there ever a conversation? I learned on my own, or other people told me. Though it feels that way, I never felt my blackness. I didn't know how because there was no one to teach me other than my peers. Yet growing up, I felt like even that wasn't it. It wasn't until I was 17 and the Black Lives Matter movement started that I, that I had but one inkling of what it meant to be black. Even then, there was going to be so much I would learn. So the book I'm going to be talking about is Everyday Use by Alice Walker. It's about a mother and her daughter Maggie living their regular, regular best lives before Maggie's older sister Dee decides to slip back into the picture. Some backstory on Dee is that pretty much she's a bitch, not a very nice person, desired everything, demanded whatever she could take, no one's favorite, but did everything in her power to make it feel so. So where the story starts is that Dee comes home after going away to college, finding herself, doing what she can to live that best life because she knows there's got to be something better than what she left behind. Then as to say, surprise bitch, she pops back into her family's lives. She's wearing an afro, a dashiki dress, and got a husband, boyfriend. We don't know, and she never tells. It's clear that if she hadn't found herself before, it looks like she's definitely found something now. And what she's found is a sense of heritage, or so it seemed, as she goes on about how she'll no longer go by her oppressed name and will now be known as Wangaro.
She plays her character well, but Dee is very much still there and makes it very clear that Wingaro is only a costume and not who she's really become. She indulges on the food that she grew up on and is now obsessed with the benches her father made at the table. She wants to take them, as well as the top to the handmade butter churner and the dasher that goes with it. Dee talks about how she wants to make them decorative pieces for her home. Then remembering what she really came for, rushes into her mother's room chest to the old quilts her grandmother had sewn. Now, Mama had kept these quilts for Maggie, so when she married, she could use them in a house of her own. Now, Mama had the decision to keep fueling Dee's dominance over them or to finally stand up against someone who's never really loved them to begin with. Mama realizes this and refuses Dee, which prompts her to leave them again. But Mama and Maggie weren't left feeling guilty about not being what Dee wanted them to be because they knew that there would be something that she would never be able to understand about who they were. So let's start with our opening scene into the story. It's all from the perspective of Mama, the narrator of the story. Mama first describes the TV shows that the intended audience can relate to, about parents and their children who've made it and knows that without their parents, they wouldn't be where they were today. Sometimes I dream a dream in which Dee and I are suddenly brought together on a TV program of this sort. Out of a dark and soft-seated limousine, I am ushered into a bright room filled with many people. There, I meet a smiling, gray, sporty man like Johnny Carson who shakes my hand and tells me what a fine girl I have. Then we are on the stage and Dee is embracing me with tears in her eyes. She pins on my dress a large orchid, even though she has told me once that she thinks orchids are tacky flowers. You see, Mama dreams of this, love and acceptance from her daughter, which apparently she's never gotten from her, only resistance and resentment. She knows that that what Dee always wanted her to be was a woman she never could and never will be. In real life, I am a large, big-boned woman with rough, man-working hands. In the winter, I wear flannel nightgowns to bed and overalls during the day. I can kill and clean a hog as mercilessly as a man. My fat keeps me hot in zero-degree weather. I can work outside all day, breaking ice to get water for washing. I can eat pork liver cooked over the open fire minutes after it comes steaming from the hog. One winter, I knocked a bull calf straight in the brain between the eyes with a sledgehammer and had the meat hung up to chill before nightfall. But of course, all this does not show on television. I am the way my daughter would want me to be, a hundred pounds lighter, my skin like an uncooked barley pancake, my hair glistens in the hot, bright lights. Johnny Carson has much to do to keep up with my quick and witty tongue. Dee grew up feeling that there should never be limits to her life and what she could be. She grew up in a world where, because of her skin color, she was told that she could only go but so far in life. She saw that other people had nice things, a seemingly better better life, so why couldn't she obtain the same things? She knew she had the drive and the determination to be like others, but somehow the world made it seem that it wasn't meant for someone like her. Even her sister Maggie sees that power that is sometimes too strong for even Dee. She thinks her sister has held life always in the palm of her hand, that no is a word the world never learned to say to her. So yeah, Dee grew up, didn't fuck with her environment, and left, 
but why? Why is this lifestyle so uncomfortable for her? And why did she hate it so much? If her mother and sister found resolve in it, why couldn't she? Easy. She wanted more and she resented them for not wanting that. Not wanting to just have the freedom to have their own house. Make enough money to live comfortably. But to make their lives better. Make their family name mean something when everyone else around them felt like it didn't. She just wanted them to want. And they didn't. Well, like I said a little earlier, she resented it and them. In the time period that she grew up in, it was the civil rights movement and the black power movement. A time where most young African Americans were tired of living in submission to their white American counterparts and decided to push for equal treatment. Now this began as a peaceful movement where those who participated were violently beaten, arrested, or even killed. So with all this violence in a peaceful movement, the members began to go into a more radical approach by fighting back. Now I mentioned this to say that the people who joined the BPM had a similar mindset about people like Dee's family who took a more passive, non-confrontational view to life. That their passiveness is the reason why African Americans were still seen as inferior in America. That they allowed themselves to be oppressed and therefore stalled their own progression. And that gave the oppressors the means to solidify the systematic oppression of people of color, even after slavery ended. I'm sure even now many young people can relate to this view of older generations. I know that I do. I actually re relate to Dee a lot and had similar feelings that Dee had about my own parents. Growing up, I was Dee. I wanted to be like all the other kids, white or black. I wanted to go out every weekend, wear cool clothes like they did, be in the social circles that they were in. But I wasn't. They didn't like the things the kids were doing these days. They didn't like the clothes they were wearing, and so they restricted me from it. Every Sunday during Bible study, they made sure to incorporate the importance of following the laws of the land, which were supposed to keep us safe from the heathens of the world until we, well, died, ensuring our safe passage into the heavenly gates after death. But like Dee, I knew there was much more to me than just being a good child of God, and I wanted more. I felt I deserved more, and knew deep inside that I could be more. So I resented them all my life for that. And I felt that my childhood could have been more had they let me be free to choose who I wanted to be before letting me into this big world. And I didn't understand why. I was already a black kid who, because of my educated background growing up, kept me separated and unwanted by the, by the other brown-skinned kids. Couldn't they at least help me fit in with the kids who would accept me, even if I was their token? So coming to college felt like that escape for me. I changed my name, my appearance, and I'm not nearly the person they thought, I, they thought they would raise. I finally could decide who I wanted to be and what I wanted to believe in. So now Dee has returned after some years of leaving the nest, and now she seems to have found herself. She's sporting a fashionable dress and letting her hair flourish into an afro. She had a male friend with her, and we're not quite sure his relation to her, just that by the way he greeted Maggie and Mama with a classic, Assalamu alaikum. We knew he was an accessory of their aesthetic in one way or another. Her appearance makes her seem different from where she originated from. Compared to her sister Maggie's simple pink skirt and red blouse, perhaps you wouldn't know they were related. And perhaps that might have also been the point. Who knows for sure. But what I'm trying to get at is this. Dee may have come looking like a different person, hoping to come off as a different person, and calls herself a different person. But still, underneath it all, She's still the same old D. 
it shows with the construction of her new name and why she chose to do that. Well, I say D. No, mom, she says, not D. Lingera Liwanika Kimanjo. What happened to D? I wanted to know. She's dead, Wangero said. I couldn't bear it any longer, being named after the people who oppressed me. Well, you know as well as me who was named after your Aunt Deesey, I said. is my sister. She named Dee. We call her Big Dee after Dee was born. But who was she named after? asked Wangero. I guess after Grandma Dee, I said. And who was she named after? asked Wangero. Her mother, I said, and saw Wangero was getting tired. That's about as far back as I can trace it, I said. Though, in fact, I probably could have carried it back beyond the Civil War through the branches. Well, said Alsamalegum, there you are. In this moment, Dee talks about her name change being motivated by the history in that name. How based on Mama can only carry it back into to slavery times where African slaves were often renamed because they were either too difficult to pronounce or simply because people were like, no, Mama doesn't quite get it, but the kids do. And because it means that the oppressors named them, created them and disabled them from being able to be much more than what they made them, slave names, as if they were the same as an inmate number, a stolen identity. And one of the ways that most like Dee felt was to escape that neo-slave narrative is to rename themselves back into that image as a born-again pure African. The fact that Mama doesn't realize that oppressors she was referring to makes Dee point that Mama is unaware of her supposed disability that slavery imposed on the black community. And perhaps that's why she couldn't progress where Dee felt she could in life. Slavery created a matrix that trapped the minds of most older people who grew up in the 100-year period after slavery was abolished, those who lived in that neo-slave area. There's this article on a book called Kindred by Octavia Butler, and I feel like it speaks exactly to how Dee is feeling towards her mother and the lifestyle she's raised her in. Kindred was published in 1979, while the movement was starting to die out. It's a fictional story based on the author's early life in her college days when the Black Power movement was just on the rise. The main focus seemed to be about her own 60s feelings and trying to figure out her conflicted views on the movement. What she learned from the others was often a sense of shame from the family they come from. In an interview, Butler recalls certain remarks she remembers hearing from someone else around her age during that time. I heard some remarks from a young man who was the same age as I, but who had apparently never made the connection with what his parents did to keep him alive. He was still blaming them for their humility and their acceptance of disgusting behavior on the part of employers and other people. He said, I'd like to kill all these old people who have been holding us back for so long, but I can't because I have to start with my own parents. When I read this from the article, it immediately makes me think of Dee and how I understand her anger and frustration now. It's the germ of the movement, that point where things get misdirected and then starts to go too far. I don't know if anyone else has been there, but I've been there. The germ had me too at one point, and I'm still just recovering from it. So here's another therapy session that you probably didn't ask for. 
I realized that my parents and I had very different views once I reached my adolescent years, especially when the Black Lives Matter movement began. I grew up in a household that taught me without explicitly saying, saying what it meant to be black in America. It would be a challenge and sometimes dangerous, but it was my understanding that it was just the way of the world and I had just to learn to manage despite my hand in life. As more reports of the news of unarmed black men getting shot by the police came out, it started to really worry me. But my father told me that this only happens because they didn't follow the rules and that if we, meaning black people, were to survive the police, then we simply had to obey them. Then Philandro Castile happened, and I never saw anything the same way again. It used to blow my mind how my parents really didn't seem to get it or would refuse to. I mean, with them also being black, Growing up in America, where it was a bit more difficult to move about the world being black, it made me resent them so much more, because I felt like this was part of the reason why my life was the way it was, why I hated myself so much growing up, because my hair was coarse and kinky, my skin wasn't a lighter complexion, and my body was too voluminous instead of thin. I hated them for not teaching me how to love myself and have pride in my race, and that felt disabling to me. And I imagine that's how Dee felt toward her mother. And because of that feeling, that's why she came back. To take things like the dasher, the churn top, benches, and the quilts. Dee felt like she was the progression. The only one who could change the narrative of her family name and preserve the greatness of her family. What she felt like Maggie and her mother had forgotten. And their proud African history would be lost in their hands. What she fails to realize is where that passivity in previous generations came from, and that passivity is ensured survival, not just for an individual survivor, but for the families who wanted to preserve their race long enough to see the days of more acceptance and change. She wanted to take back those things because she felt like she would be the only one who could preserve them right. But she came back for the wrong things. If she is the progression, she has to acknowledge the struggle it took to get to that progression. It was a movement in itself, and if there is a name for it already, I'd like to call it the survivalist movement. A movement where black people were able to at least find their footing in a country that never supported them being independent. Mom survived. She was able to survive long enough to bear children, build a home, lose it, and then build up another one again. And now being older, maybe her work for her generation is over, so she's hoping that she can rest while the new generation, her children, can do their part and change the world. A yard like this is more comfortable than most people know. It's not just a yard. It's like an extended living room. When the hard clay is swept clean as a floor and the fine sand around the edges lined with tiny, irregular grooves, anyone can come and sit and look up into the elm tree and wait for the breezes that never come inside the house. Mama's home represents her struggle, and to come that far in her generation is admirable. Mama didn't need to necessarily escape the ghetto to become something more. It was about just being able to get farther than previous generations were able to. Dee can't accept the progress, and that it takes to make those worldly changes, and so that's why, for now, Wangaro is just a phony. She can't really see the world like her mom does as a whole, past, present, and possible future. 
until she does her hair, clothes, and household decorations are all disappropriations of a culture she, she still has yet to understand. Thank you.